Lord God, you give the Spirit without limit. And we pray that because we've been attending to your Holy Spirit today, in the preaching of your word, we might experience more of all that you have for us by that same Spirit. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, why did you get up today earlier than most of the population did? Well, probably to uh, walk or get on your bike or get in your car. Yes, but why did you walk or get on your bike or uh, get in your car? It was to come to church. You did the lesser things in order to achieve the bigger thing. And I want to begin in an unusual place, uh, not in our reading. Would you please turn to page 1170 in your church Bibles? We're going to get uh, to our reading, obviously. We're going to start at uh, chapter 3 and verse 14. What I want us to notice is the order of purposes, a bit like I just ran through, that Paul is laying out here. Why did Jesus die on the cross to redeem us? Why did he uh, uh, redeem us? Well, in order that the blessing from Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Well, why did the blessing go to the Gentiles? So that all, according to verse 14 all might receive the promise of God's Spirit. According to chapter 3 and verse 14, Jesus does not come to this earth to die, but in order that we might share in his Spirit. That's the Spirit that brings the promise of being God's own children, as the beginning of chapter 4 says. Now, it's an extraordinary truth if you take the same kind of uh, logic as I did at the beginning about why you get up to come to church. All that Jesus does is in order that you and I might share in his spirit. There are still far too many internal battles fought out in the church of God between factions for and against the charismatic dimension of church life. That's a focus on the on the grace of God through his Holy Spirit. And 3.14 is as good a charter for the charismatic, a properly charismatic basis to the church as any other places in Scripture. So that, the final part of the, the argument, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Rightly, we put great emphasis on the cross It was the uh, uh, infinitely awful hurdle that the Son of God had to face to deal with the sin that separates you and me from God. It was the experience he had to face to bear in his own perfect person all the imperfections that we know. Yet 3.14 says that the cross itself is there for a greater reason still in order that we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So, now we'll turn to where we should be today. Chapter 5 and verse 16, over the page, 1172. 
When Paul says in verse 16, live by the Spirit, he's not talking about some little detail then of the Christian life. He's not, as it were, made some major point, and we kind of may have missed it because we weren't here last week or whatever, and now he's going on to do some sort of sweeping up of details. This is the main point. Living by the Spirit is the reason for which everything else has happened. God wants us to live in the promise of His Spirit as His children, indwelt by God Himself. And how do we live by the Spirit? Well, it's not going to be by clenching some muscle more tightly, nor by trying really, really hard to be spiritual. It's just following the logic that Paul has taken us through as we kind of rise up through his argument. To live in the Spirit comes from being a child of God. To be a child of God comes from belonging freely to Jesus. To belong freely to Jesus is to have recognized the gift of Christ for us on the cross. Understand the cross of Christ in your heart, and you are living by the Spirit of God. And so at the beginning of our passage today, Paul is setting up an opposition. On the one hand, the Spirit of God within the believer. On the other, the believer's sinful nature or the flesh. If you live by the Spirit, appreciating what God has done, rejoicing in your status as among God's own children, then you will not be one who is giving in all the time to your sinful nature because, verse 17, the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. What he's saying here is a bit like it in Romans, but this is here, not Romans. What he's saying is that it's characteristic of the spirit on the one hand and the sinful nature on the other to want you to want to stop you living by the other one. Whatever you want, if it's from your sin, then the spirit wants to stop you. If it's from the Holy Spirit, your sinful nature wants to stop you. And then at the end of this paragraph, in verse 18, he introduces a new element. Living by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, this frees you from the failing ways that the law of Israel would persuade you that it can deal with your sinful nature. Perhaps you'll remember... Uh, we've been in a series in Galatians and we've learned that there are those in the church that Paul's writing to trying to persuade them to be circumcised, to come under the Jewish law. And for our purposes this week, that serves as any kind of law that has a moral authority. George Bernard Shaw, who had an Irish background, used to have a particular loathing for what he called English middle-class respectability. And it's, that, that's a, it's a moral authority. It's a law in its own right. Doing your best. And even though the law only gets a mention here in verse 18 and then a bit later in verse 23, we must understand the depth of what he's talking about. They say that good fences make good neighbours. Everyone knows where their responsibilities begin and end and everything is, is neat and tidy but it is possible to become obsessed with the fence. 
And Paul's complaint is that what's a good rule for your garden is a bad rule for the human heart. The heart will become obsessed with whether it's one side or the other today. It must end up worrying about the margins of its behavior instead of with its whole direction and orientation. The Jewish fence of law, while it can express the character of God, cannot change the motivation of the human heart so that it is like God. Just to to pick up an example from where he's going in a moment, think about envy. The law can say to you, do not covet. Actually, the law can do a bit more. It can say, well, yes, this would be coveting. Uh, that, That wouldn't be coveting if you look at the way the the law was expanded over the years. But what it can't do is stop you coveting. It hasn't got the power to do it. And so, for Paul, the opposition is not between sinful nature and law, because he's saying law is useless, hasn't got the power. The opposition is between law and uh, the life of the Spirit. And he's going in the rest of what he says today to open up those Uh, those differences for us. And I'm not going to go through all of them uh, one by one. I'm sorry for those of you who really wanted to know what an orgy is. You'll have to ask me later. (laughs) But I will just register groups of what's being talked about. The first group, uh, uh, verse 19, uh, sins about sex, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. People say, why is the church obsessed with sex? And I often think we're too inclined to say, no, we're not. Uh, Yes, we are. I hope we are, because Paul was. And for a good reason. Because there's no deeper strand to our identity. Sin will show up in how we deal with our sexuality probably faster than it will show up anywhere else. So, no sex before or outside marriage. That's what Paul's language for immorality means here. No impurity, no hoping for and dreaming about sex before or outside marriage. No debauchery, no indulging with others in dreaming about and hoping for sex before or outside marriage. And then group two, little group, idolatry and witchcraft. He's talked about being faithful uh, to your partner, to your uh, marriage partner. And now, idolatry and witchcraft, be faithful to God himself. Don't go for alternatives. Group three, long group, hatred, discord, jealousy, rage, ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy. These are all about the way we relate to others. You could sum it up by saying, be faithful to your neighbors. Now, of course, I suspect that very few of us can read a list like that without internally going through a little tick list. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, haven't done that one. Um, Idolatry, uh, witchcraft, no, I'm okay, I'm good on witchcraft. Um, That's not the point. Look at it the other way around. Be faithful to God, be faithful to your marriage partner, be faithful to your neighbor, and then the last group, uh, drunkenness and orgies and the like. Don't overindulge. Don't lose focus on the key to your life, the promise of God. Be faithful to God, to your spouse, to your neighbor, to yourself. 
And is there anything much wrong with our world now, let alone in Paul's day, but now, that doesn't fit into that list? I don't think there is. And Paul is very solemn and serious. And I say this world as though it's all out there. Forget that it's, it's just in here too. He's being very solemn and serious. This lifestyle, the life of the sinful nature cannot live in the kingdom of God. End of verse 21. There's an absolute uh, separation, and I would be remiss, therefore, not to warn you today. If you're here this morning, and you've never really come to terms, never considered the cross of Jesus Christ, so that you've never even begun to access God's answer to your sinful nature, then you are in mortal, and worse, you are in immortal peril. This is the sinful nature, and it has no place in the kingdom of God that is coming. Sort it out today. Even if it it has to get sorted out before signing a yellow card, sort it out today. Maybe, as we move on, like me, you had to uh, learn the fruit of the Spirit. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. But again, they come in groups. Love, joy, peace. The kind of love that's being talked about when it links with the others makes it clear this is about a relationship with God. This is appreciating what God has done, what his character is, revealed in what he has done, his love. It's about the joy that flows like a fountain up, bubbles up uh, from the heart of someone who knows the love of God. Peace is the characteristic of calmness that knows actually nothing, once the cross of Christ has happened, nothing can take you away from the love of God. And so even the worst is copable with. And then the relationship with neighbor, patience. And the word there means a kind of a long-sufferingness with a difficult person. Kindness. Goodness. Well, we heard of those in the story from Diana uh, earlier on when the children were in. And then the relationship, the management of ourselves. Faithfulness, gentleness. That's a kind of meekness. It's that quality of, of gentle Jesus, genuinely meek. Not feeble, incredibly strong, in fact, but in charge of himself capable of knowing who he is and not looking to uh, boast. The the relationship with God, the relationship with neighbor, and the management of self. Richard, I wonder if you could close that door for us. Thank you. All of it is fruit. It's natural. It's organic. It's not self-achieved. And no law is effective against those things. And the list shows what's wrong with the law. Thanks. You can analyze the boundary between envy and not envy, but no law will put in place the right attitude to your neighbor of self-giving love. Law is not good at establishing a community of the children of God. Only love can do that. The priest and the Levite both understood the law very well, but it wasn't they who went and helped the man uh, who'd been beaten up. It was the Samaritan who didn't follow the law and was guided by love. Well, then Paul goes on at verse 24. 
Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Well, have we? If we've crucified it, verse 24, how come, in verse 16, he's allowed it still to have a power? You won't gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Well, of course, we think, because our only experience of crucifixion is the crucifixion of Jesus... Uh, So we think of it as the crucifixion and death all wrapped up together. We don't have the mindset that they would have done, in which crucifixion is a penalty, a long and lingering punishment, as a body is nailed to a cross. It it would have been a long and lingering death. And so, whereas earlier in Galatians, Paul has spoken as crucifixion and no longer living, crucifixion and dying, putting them together as what God has done for us and in us through Jesus Christ. Here, he's talking about what we do when we take our sinful nature and nail it to a cross. And it will be a lingering process. We need not expect instant death. You have crucified. You have nailed it to a piece of wood. But it is powerful, hasn't lost all its power, and it will fight back. Nonetheless, if you belong to Christ Jesus, you've crucified that nature. You live by the Spirit. That has been done for you. The cross of Jesus Christ means you live by the Spirit. God has done that. But if God has done that, then your task is deliberately and with full uh, consciousness to walk in a step with the Spirit. Verse 25. Law will not keep your relationships. And so in verse 26, he says, look, you're you're getting it wrong. Just as he ended verse 50, in verse 15, that passage about biting and devouring each other, now he talks about being conceited, provoking and envying each other. If you try to live by the law, you will get it wrong. You'll be trying, each one of you will be trying to keep a standard, and you can't keep it. Go back to the basics. You are renewed in Jesus Christ. You are brothers and sisters with one another because of what the Holy Spirit has done in establishing his spirit in you of, of sonship so that you cry, Abba, Father. Only the Holy Spirit of God has the power to stop conceit and provocation and envy. Well, as I've prepared all this, and now as we work towards the end, I've been struck by something. It feels like a long time since we've covered the work of God's Holy Spirit, just in the general run of our work from Scripture. And it occurs to me, therefore, that some may say to themselves, well, I don't need all that. I've come to Jesus, and I'm trying my best to serve him now. I don't need all this airy, fairy spirit stuff. And I just want to say, yes, you do. You do need all the airy, fairy spirit stuff. What does the language of God's Holy Spirit do for Paul in his argument and for us in experience right now? Firstly, it tells us that this is from God. You're not left on your own. You're not told to come to Jesus Christ and to his cross, given a new life, and then said, okay, off you go, bye. 
there is the fruit of God's Spirit. There is work going on in you because you have come to the cross of Jesus Christ. There is God stuff happening. Secondly, there is God stuff happening because he himself is in you. And it still blows me away that God himself should come to reside, to dwell in you and me. Not give us an idea, not give us an instruction manual, but actually come to reside. And thirdly, it's about a direction of travel because it is impossible if God has taken up residence that he's going to say, okay, well, I'm a bit bored with this now. I'm off. God will not give up. Yes, you need the airy-fairy spirit stuff, if you want to call it that, because it's actually not remotely airy-fairy at all. It is the deepest reality that Paul can express. It is all about, the whole thing was always about, the entire created order was to serve this purpose, that God's Holy Spirit should live in you and me and in his church and enter into his promises. This is the end point of priority and purpose. There is no, oh, and he comes to dwell by his spirit in order that. No, he comes to dwell by his spirit. That's what it's all about. It is all precisely so that you and I might receive the promise of the spirit. It's what it's all for. God loves us so much that he wants to take up residence. If we refuse that gift, then it means you are standing on your own in ungrace You have not appreciated the cross and you will not stand in the day of his kingdom. Let's pray together. And I I suggest an uh, an exercise. Uh, I want to talk to you each individually, so close your eyes. Then you won't worry about what everyone else is doing. And I want you just uh, to imagine that Jesus Christ is in front of you because it is he who actually demonstrates to us what love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control look like. The fruit of the Spirit is the gift of Jesus' own personality. Jesus is in front of you. And I want you to, as it were, go a little outside yourself and look back. What is your posture as Jesus Christ is in front of you? Where are your feet? What are you doing with your hands? Have you suddenly just thought to yourself, oh, he asked us to look about Jesus. I didn't know I was going to have to look at myself, and I feel terribly awkward about the way I'm sitting. whether you do it with the body that is actually parked on a chair right now or only in the head as you face Jesus Christ. Just again, consider your posture. Closed, open, hands outstretched, hands decently held in, God gives the Spirit without limit. Look at your posture. Jesus is standing before you, happy to give you His Spirit without limit. 
What does the posture of your life tell you about how much of his spirit you're willing to receive? Lord God, we come to these signs and symbols of the love of Jesus Christ in his life laid down for us and in his life raised and lived and made available to us. Be at work, we pray. So that as we keep in step with your Spirit, we may take on the character of Jesus and more and more and more and more of our life may be open to his Holy Spirit. Amen.